Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 94, To Thine Own Self Be True, with Tess Hughes. Tess is a friend of mine. And I met her through a spiritual organization called TAT, Truth and Transmission, which is an organization set up by uh, West Virginia mystic Richard Rose. Uh, we've previously talked to Art Tickner, who is a mutual friend, um, and that was episode 34, and Anima Pandir, who is episode 75. So if you're interested in, in this type of thing, you can go back to those episodes, and you can also find Tess's book, uh, This Above All which was published in 2016 and is available on all the regular places. I always enjoy speaking with Tess, and I hope that you enjoy the episode. And real quick, before we go into our episode with Tess, I just wanted to tell you all about a sale that I'm having with my small herbal product business, Traveling Herb Farmer. It's this weekend, which is Halloween weekend, my favorite time of the year, and I'm selling uh, my skin soothing salves with a deal of buy two get one free of the large four ounce size skin soothing salves and they're made with organic olive oil and coconut oil and new york beeswax and i infuse calendula and comfrey that i grow here at the farm which are both cell regenerative herbs and they help to make new skin cells and to heal cuts and scrapes and just moisturize dry skin great for winter time so if you're looking to get some gifts or to stock up yourself on skin soothing salve for winter, this is a really hot deal. They're $20 each, so you get three for the price of two for 40 bucks. And you can choose between the different varieties I have, including unscented or lavender or rosemary, my favorite, or woodland blend, which is balsam for cedar and mint. So check it out on my website, travelingherbfarmer.com, and use the coupon code CAULDRON, which is C-A-U-L-D-R-O-N, CAULDRON, to get the hot deal. Thanks. Okay, so on this episode of the Plant Cutting Podcast, we have uh, my friend, my spiritual friend and and, uh, someone of a mentor and and role model on the path, uh, Tess Hughes, and Tess is phoning in from western ireland uh so how how are you today tess i'm great isaac it's thank you for inviting me i'm delighted to be here and to meet ac how are you we're great i'm delighted to meet you as well yeah this is going to be a lot of fun um so you're you are also know anima pandir and art tickner they've been crucial in your path um in your spiritual uh path and mine as well and we, we've had them both on the show before too mm-hmm. um but do you, i guess we could get started by talking about uh your your childhood and where you came from like um what was it like growing up in rural ireland i grew up at the foot of a holy mountain mm. a pilgrimage mountain called croak patrick c-r-o-u-g-h c-r-a-u-g-h is the uh, the irish word meaning mountain um, and from my house, you could see a pathway that went right up the side of the mountain. And any of you folk can Google it. and You will see that it's, you know, one of these uh, volcanic mountains that is a cone. Um, so I, I'm one of nine children. I'm the second of nine. We grew up on a farm. 
Uh, we lived in the house beside the school. <laughs> so uh, what else can I tell you? Well, that was pretty typical of the time. I mean, I was born in 1949. I'm 73 now. So that was 1949. And, um, you know, so I grew up in the 50s, we'll say, as a kid around. But there were several other families around, typical Irish Catholic, poor, what you would call poor. We didn't think we were poor. We were never short of food. We were never short of heat. We made fires. We, did, we didn't have shoes in summer. We went to school barefoot in summer and we had shoes or whatever to go in the winter. But my, my siblings, uh, who are 10 years and 12 years younger than me, they claim that this is lies, that they never went to school without their shoes. So in the 10 years after that, they uh, evidently shoes became available or people became well enough off to have shoes or something. But we, we certainly didn't consider it poverty. It was very religious, but not in the sense religious in terms of churches and going to services and all of that. It was more an attitude. Uh, the, the attitude was things like, you know, if you were going to see somebody next week, somebody always said, well, with the help of God or God willing. Um, you know, we weren't going to mass or things like that. My parents did on a Sunday, but my mother was always pregnant and having new babies and you know, she couldn't go out that much. But I, my father went, you know, and that was that was every household, the whole everybody. And there was just that whole sense that, you know, we're grateful for the good things and, you know, thank God for these lovely, health, healthy children we're getting. It was that kind of attitude. So it was that kind of a religion rather than, uh, you know, going to church and sermons and so on. Yeah. I mean, when I hear Americans talk about being Irish Catholics, I can hardly relate to it. It seems <laughs> it seems more like a political movement. Uh -huh. or something to me in a way that it wasn't here I mean, it was like it was in the it was in the water here or something mm. it was just yeah. taken for granted but it was that thing that we we weren't in control of our own destinies uh that there was something else called god that uh we were grateful for when things went well mm. uh, and it was just an attitude and you didn't even question it you know when you're a child and you grow up completely in an atmosphere of well with the help of god and we thank god you know we have enough of everything and you know it was just part of the way of being i mean there wasn't we didn't really question it mm. until i got to be more like a teenager hmm. yeah what brought about that that questioning for you as a teenager um what brought it about I was probably reading things, you know. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't know there weren't people who weren't Catholics in the world when I was a child. I mean, everybody was. I mean, I knew the name of what we were was Catholic, but so was everybody else. Right. <laughs> right. So it was a bit like you you're Irish, you know, and you didn't know there were people that weren't Irish until you're ten or eleven. I don't know yeah. some age like that. I mean, don't forget these are pre-internet and pre-television mm -hmm. and all of those kinds of days. Yeah. So everybody around us was like that, and um, that's what they were. Didn't really know that there was a lot of difference. Uh, there's a lot of difference. So I must have been reading because I was a good reader, hmm. and especially as a teenager, I started reading everything, and I was really drawn into things like you know um, Dante's Divine Comedy and. Uh, 
you know, Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained, and we were doing poetry, this kind of stuff. And I just was in love with this stuff, you know, the big meaning of life and uh, there was deep meaning. There was a mystery at the core of it. I mean, this was I really got it that there was something magnificent about being. Mm. I mean, whatever it was, I didn't know. Um, and But I remember and I felt quite devotional. And I think that a lot of children have a kind of a devotional I don't know whether you'd call it romantic or emotional, devotional kind of feeling about love and life and about everything. And uh, I remember thinking, well, maybe I'd be a nun, you know, that that would be a way to really do all of that. And I can remember specifically, I was about 16 or 17, I'd say, walking down a road outside our house and thinking about this. Well, uh, you know, I could be a nun you know, dedicate my life to that. But, and then I also thought, well, but the church, it doesn't, you know, it, uh, how, how was I thinking of it? Oh, yeah, I had I had a choice. I'd have to go one of two ways in my life. I'd have to live the life of a woman or the life of a nun. Now, the life of a woman would mean that you would get married and have a family and have babies and everything like that. And I knew that the church didn't have much time for that. But I figured out that, well, you know, I lived on a farm and you had cows and you had hens and you it was always the females that were producing everything. <laughs> it was all the women who were feeding all the kids and everything. Life would not go on without women. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but the, the Catholic Church, you know, if you were a nun, you wouldn't be able to get married or have babies or anything like that. But they didn't have much time for that. And I didn't know the word misogyny. I didn't know anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I and into my head came the literally the sentence, I'll have to go the life of the woman. Uh-huh. I'll have to, that's the life I'll have to go because that's the life that provides life. Mm-hmm. And if in every version of it on the farm and of the women and of everything. And you know, forget about this devotional thing that that was a kind of a limited Mm. That was limited by comparison with being a woman. I, does that make sense to you? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I had that. Um, and then, I, you know, when I was about 18, I went off to university, which was unusual enough from my background and so on, but that did happen. And it was at a time, it was the late 60s, when there was a lot of encouragement for women to do science and be learning science. So I was quite good in school, so I did science. And while I was doing science, there was a lot of uh, people who were atheists. This is the first time now I start hearing kind of various atheistic ideas and there's no proof that there's God and all this. And I I was very influenced by this. Um, So I went, I decided then I'd be very grown up and smart and (laughs) I'd be a clever one. So I became atheist and I pronounced atheistic kinds of things and ideas and so on um and uh, that all changed when my first child was born when I was 25 mm-hmm. I just uh, I just you know that whatever is going on whatever it is I mean something in me clicked back to some kind of version of the mystery and mm-hmm. joy and beauty and hardship and everything of it all that uh, there was was much more to it than just I mean you weren't just an animal that died and went down on the ground and that was the end of it I couldn't 
I couldn't go along with that. And it was more, mm-hmm. I don't know, was it emotional or intuitive? I don't know what it was. It wasn't particularly logical. But anyway, that's when the change back to incorporate something more came over me. Mm-hmm. And so I lived with an agnostic mentality for the next 40 years. Mm-hmm. And the, of course, the kind of society I grew up in, people are always debating, is there a God or is there not? You know, And I couldn't come down on either side. Mm-hmm. I couldn't say there is and I couldn't say there isn't. Mm-hmm. And I was always with an eye out or I should say an ear out. I was hoping I'd find an answer somewhere. Yeah. So I was always reading stuff and I was trying to find an answer to this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most significant things to me that happened around the time I came across chat, which was 40 years later, for all my reading and all my looking and all the rest, it's a little snippet. And it's on YouTube to this day of Richard Rose saying, there is no God outside of you. Hmm. And it's that outside of you. I went, oh, perhaps I... Maybe within myself is where I have to look. When I had been looking in books and I'd been arguing and debating, trying to read philosophy or whatever, there's nothing outside of you. You know, and I thought, oh, my goodness. So this was a bit of a a new direction, we'll call it. Hmm. And so uh, what was that like, the the path of the path of inquiry, inquiry? How did that develop? Um, and how did you, how did you come by tat? <laughs> oh, <laughs> how did I come by tat? I, um, I was Googling the first time in my life I ever Googled anybody. I Googled the name of my first boyfriend, which was Richard Rose. <laughs> and I did not come up with it. That was 2003. Uh, I had only gotten a computer. I was when I was just ahead of the whole computer generation and didn't know anything about it. I mean, just didn't understand the language or anything, you know. I mean, when I was growing up, a mouse was one thing, and now a mouse had become something different. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> Any amount of language, you know, I was like, what is this? Someone mm. talking about their mouse. What are they all about? <laughs> uh, so anyway, at, at the turn of the millennium, I had bought myself a computer. I thought I'd, I had better upgrade myself or find out a bit about this. So I'd bought a computer and I was trying to, I mean, I didn't know whether I was on the internet or off the internet. I mean, I was really, I had no education about this. And I was, did you remember that series of books, you know, uh, Computers for Dummies or, so I had gotten that book, you know, I think it was (laughs) Computers for Dummies and trying to do what I could with it. But anyway, I had in 2003, that autumn, I decided I would Google. I knew you could Google things like, you know, museums or African animals or the jungle or something. I didn't know you could Google the name of a person you knew. Mm. Um, So I thought I would Google this old boyfriend because I had wondered if he had died. Mm-hmm. Because something had happened that made me think, well, if he has died, there'll be an obituary. And I didn't want to be asking people about my old boyfriend. You know, they'd say, what's yeah. the problem with her kind of thing? <laughs> and, um, of course, what I came across was chat. And I didn't understand it. I did not understand the sentences on the first page. Mm. You know, it was something like, 
the highest form of spirituality is the essence of self. I, I mean, I don't know if, if we looked it up. It's still the same sentences. And I was like the highest form of spirit, the essence of self, finding the essence of man. Yeah, what's that? I mean, I did not even understand the language. Yeah. And, and just yes, I felt there was there was something really authentic about this, but it was but I didn't understand it. And I was also like, well, I understand every single word in that sentence, but I don't understand the meaning. What's huh. going on? And so I started going back to try and get more of it. That's how it started for me with Tat. So, and just for those who don't don't know, uh, TAT is an organization of spiritual seekers and finders that Tess is a part of, and I'm a part of, and Richard Rose founded uh, back in the 70s. Different Richard Rose than your first boyfriend, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. <laughs> I've been asked that many times. Was he, was he your old boyfriend? No, 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 no connection at all. It was just, I mean, how did yeah. you find it? But I also knew when that happened, I mean, you know, did you ever have something really weird happen to you and you go, what? just happened yeah. there that was a synchronicity right like that yeah that there. was happened with that we're like what just happened there mm -hmm. i mean what is this stuff that and this kind of language i felt that something had happened that was it was and it was almost like as if god was saying do i have to rub your nose in it <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and i i was what would I say? I I had noticed that something had happened and I didn't know what to think about it. And then I didn't understand these sentences, but I understood every word in them. So I that's how I started trying to look things up. And then there were links further down and there were links into other uh, websites with stuff. And that's what got me into kind of reading the whole stuff. I found the forum and yeah. they had... Um, Oh, they had 20 years of, uh, you know, of archive, archived material, of articles. I've probably read every one of them. I started going every night and reading some of those. And there were always something about some version of the mystery of life, mm -hmm. yeah. some way or other. And that was what, uh, how I got, you know, into that. So, mm -hmm. so what does spirituality mean to you now because I, I know it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people yeah but what do you see as the the essence of spirituality um it's the thing of the question of what am i what is a human being what am i really and so that, that gets the identity as to what are we mm -hmm. yeah but before I ever came across Tat, I had had a question, and my question was, you know, the big question that has come from uh, the Indian sage, Ramana Maharshi, is, who am I? And it's a sentence you hear nowadays, all kinds of things, you know, uh, people bringing it up, and it's lost its meaning. It's been, you know, oftentimes things are, they get into public or to the mainstream, and their original meaning is lost, mm -hmm. and they mean something different. It's like, you know, what am I yet or whatever, like because I'm worth it, you know, L'Oreal or something. And um, the question I had, though, was what is a human being? I mean, what, what kind of, you know, science would tell you, and I'd known this, that we're animals and we're at the top of the 
food chain and so on. You could look and you could see, you know, where we fit in and from in terms of evolution and so on. But I think there are no other animals that are building cathedrals and orchestras and symphonies and, you know, this constant outpouring of creativity mm-hmm. that if anything is the core the essential mark of a human being it's this creative drive creative force this constant creativity that's going on and I, that was for me a question well, what are we anyway what is a human being and really when I look at what I was doing if I could know what a human being was then I could know what I was yeah well, we weren't just any an, an animal on the earth, the same as any other animal. There was a significantly different dimension to us, whatever that was. Um, and so I, I, that, in a way, was what I had always been trying to get a handle on, shall we say. What mm-hmm. is a human? What is this? So it is really the core question of the identity question. Mm-hmm. What am I? I didn't, what am I would still be the question I'd ask rather than who am I? Who am I felt too personal, it's just me or whatever. Whereas mm-hmm. what am is us human yeah. beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's, our, what's our essential nature? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and often what, what underlies that for a lot of people is, what am I after, am I something that dies? What yes, happens of course. After, yeah. You know, am I an immortal soul or am I going to just disappear? Mm. Yeah. At the end. So, well, what did you what did you find during your line of inquiry? Um, well, you know, bringing up the, I mean, the the core fear for all human beings is to do with death. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, one way or another. I mean, people don't always say that. All right, it just you know, people say, "Oh, I'm not afraid of death at all." But it doesn't necessarily. It's not. <laughs> it's not afraid of it. It's like baffled by it. Uh-huh. You know, well, what is this? And one of the things I think it was Richard Rose. I don't know where I came across it, or is it a, just a Christian thing? Like the three core questions. Maybe it's from philosophy. Where did I come from? I think it's the middle one is what am I now and where am I going? Um, who was the, the painter Gauguin made oh. a painting in Tahiti which has exactly the, the name the title of the painting is the three sentences mm-hmm. where, did, where did I come from what am I or why am I here some question like that and where am I going mm-hmm. and I, so when I came across that I, I thought I couldn't believe that somebody even thought you could ask such a question you know I mean I would, I kind of thought, well, I mean, nobody will have an answer to that. I mean, it's ridiculous to even ask, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in chat that I heard some things saying, you know, but that's, I mean, I, I had always been working, my idea of spirituality, when it, as well as what I've just said to you, you know, being agnostic and always looking for some kind of a, a resolution to, you know, well, what is this life about? What happens to us? Um, I every regularly or every so often would come up that, you know, something would like, you know, oh, my God, if I was told tomorrow I was going to die or if I knew I was going to be dying next year. So I was aware of the death thing and the terror and the horror that arose with that and the complete lack of did anything make any sense? And, <laughs> you know, this had 
it, you know, by the time I was 50, my children were grown up. And, you know, when you're when you're raising children, you know, you can't afford to think about things like that because you're just you are desperate to be around and to get them up. That's just built in. Mother Nature has built that in. And then you get to be about 50 and they're grown up and think, wow, that's done. Now, the next big thing that's going to come is my own death. Mm. I mean, whether sooner or later now, it might be 40 years off, but it might be next year mm -hmm. or whatever. And I, I had read someplace that said, you don't have to wait for the bad news for it to be upon you. You can start preparing now and you can have done your preparations. Uh, so I had, I had read that in some book or had heard it someplace. So, well, how do you go about that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. What do you do? Like, we're not talking now about making a will or getting no. your pension in order or something. It was, I mean, it was definitely the some kind of a spiritual question, you know, preparing yourself for your own demise. And it was attached that I had heard. And I, I think I had said, I only went there for two weekends, by the way, uh, because it's a long way from Ireland and it costs a lot of money and all of this kind of stuff. And I, uh, and I had said something, somebody had said, what was your problem? I, I didn't want to say my problem is fear of death because it wasn't, but I thought it was, it was, they would think I was childish or silly if I said something like, well, you know, death is the, death is the big problem, but I must have said it. And somebody, that's the core, that's the essence of what spiritual work is about. And what enlightenment is, you find what you are beyond death. And where it come from, what were you before you were a body and what are you after? I was like, you mean you can find this out? Yeah, that's what's, what enlightenment is about. Oh, now that's a game changer. And I was just, oh, yeah. tell me more. And <laughs> so I just wanted to know. And then they said to me, there's some people around here that this has happened to. Which ones? And they pointed out, oh, well, they look the same as anybody else. And Which I ones? <laughs> I mean, they didn't, they didn't look any different to whoever I was speaking to. I said, well, that person has happened to him. And, and I'm like, but they just look ordinary like the rest of us. Well, he says it happened to him. And, uh, you know, I have no reason not to believe him. And that's what happened with Richard Rose. And that's what this whole thing is about. This is what Richard Rose is trying to give people clue he found when he was 30 something happened to him he was overcome with some kind of a an experience or situation that showed him what he was before he beyond being a body and a mind and that's and he's been trying to he, his teachings are all about leaving behind some clues or some ideas of kinds of things that a person might be doing that might make this possible for them and it's possible for anybody. I mean, it, this is, you know, this is not any kind of exclusive club or anything like that. It's um, it's available to everybody. I think it happens to some people fairly spontaneously because you hear every so often of spontaneous awakenings. I don't know if anybody myself. I mean, the people I know are people who did make a real effort. Yeah. Uh, and doing certain, doing whatever kinds of things. But mainly... Uh, I think what's, you know, it isn't that you're trying to be a good person or be a happy person or be anything. It's you're trying to find what's real. What's the truth? Mm -hmm. Where's it at? What's the bottom line here? Um, and that, that to me is what real spirituality is about. Us coming to know ourselves right down 
to our essence. I mean, that <laughs> sentence on, that I first said, what mm -hmm. is at the core of every one of us, and it's the same thing at the core of every one of us. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so then I got it. That was 2003 when I came across that website. I spent two years reading the forum and mooching around the different websites of Bob Ferguson and Art Tickner or whatever. A lot of them I didn't understand. You know, a lot of the kind of teachings and the things that are up there. I mean, I just wasn't able to understand them. I probably I'm not able to understand them to this day. But I found that reading that kind of stuff, it set me in a particular, I don't know, was it a mindset or a mood or an attitude? Plus, then when somebody said, well, you know, this is what it is. It re it's a resolution of the debt question. Mm. Well, that was really, I mean, if that was possible, because I had gotten to the stage at this stage that the whole debt thing, it kept popping up all the time. You know, you're in the shower and you think, oh, is that a lump under my arm? Is it, you know, is it, oh my God, nearly got hit by a, by a bus today. Look the wrong way. I mean, it just seemed to be coming up it's just there all the time you're always hearing about somebody who was found dead in their bed or they you know i mean the kind of society i live you're hearing hearing these things and it got to be that i felt I, I couldn't i didn't know how to live when i didn't know what death was it had just it was taking the good out of everything on me and so I just started doing all the things that I learned at TAT. I mean, there isn't time enough here to be here, you know, to try and give a real sense of what that is, because I see Isaac nodding his head, because it's just, you know, a way of understanding and a way of interpreting your own experience and um, ideas for how you might uh, work with yourself to find what's in yourself. It's not like there's a one size fit, fits all. Mm. You know, everybody has to uh, go on this inquiry in their own way, mm -hmm. in the way that works for them. It's a, it's a highly specific thing, but there are general rules, you know? Yeah. Um, do, you have, do you have any um, examples or tips or ways of you know, doing self-inquiry and prioritizing yourself when you have a busy life, when you are a mother, when you are working, like, how do you, how do you take time every day in the day-to-day? -day? Well, you don't have to take time, AC. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. Because while you're walking up the stairs or while you're sitting in the bathroom mm -hmm. or while you're washing the dishes or waiting to make a cup of tea, all of those times you're with yourself. Yeah. You're doing the things that are required of daily life and of functioning and of living. And most of the time you're not taught, you don't have to engage. A lot of them you don't have to be engaging with anybody else. So there's a lot of time when you're not engaging with anybody else and you can start looking, learning to look inside yourself and see what's going on. Just check inside yourself. How am I feeling? Why do I feel like that? Mm -hmm. um, and you don't have to tell anybody else what you're thinking either. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, um, I mean, all the time, we have a stream running all the time, which we're not sharing with other people. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, everybody has that. Now, okay, you might share with somebody, but that's you've taken it out. So when, then you might even ask yourself, why am I telling this person that? Am I looking for their approval or for their agreement or whatever? Whereas if it arose inside yourself, you might think, well, why am I thinking that? What triggered it? What's 
what's it about? So then you might start uh, noticing when things come up, um, what triggered that thought stream? I mean, oftentimes people say thought, but it's more likely to be thought streams. There's be a stream of thoughts about something. So what am I thinking about? Oh, that's a memory from when I was a teenager and something. What has me thinking? 20 years later about yeah. that day in school when the teacher said that, huh. what triggered that? If it came up, I mean, you know yourself that there are so many incidents in every day that a particular one to come up, there must be something about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that's the kind of way in which you start self-inquiry. You start noticing these things and start looking at them. And you might find then, you know, that you have a regular, you might start looking for patterns mm -hmm. of what come up. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, are they, it, are there times all the times that uh, somebody put you down or didn't ignore you? Hmm. You know, for, but I don't like him. Why do you not like him? You think, actually, he never even says hello to me. He ignores me. Okay, now you begin to get a clue. Uh, I don't like people who ignore me. Mm -hmm. I want attention. Mm. I want to be noticed. Now, then you say, well, why do I want to be noticed? Why does it matter to me if somebody, uh -huh. if such and such, a person I don't even know in the shop, behind uh -huh. the counter, and... Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not talking about the significant people and you're like, why do I want such and such a person to notice me? What's lacking in me that I want that? Mm. Um, so that's kind of how self-inquiry begins. And you start noticing and you start seeing patterns about yourself. So the name of the game is Know Thyself. Uh -huh. you know, Shakespeare or whatever. The mm -hmm. title of my book is To Thine Own Self Be True. Be true to yourself. Yeah. Well, you can only be true to yourself when you know yourself. So it's things like this. So what's we all have a kind of a, a reel of thought streams going on inside all the time. Yeah. And uh, they're under the radar where they're not what we bring out and what we talk about. I mean, we're going around there looking at somebody and thinking, look at that idiot with the that kind of a top and that kind of a bottom. They don't even go together. No <laughs> style in the world, you know. Um, but you're not going to say it or anything but you're making these little judgments mm -hmm. all the time. They're about everything. Now, some of them are to do with safety. We're judging, but a lot of times they're not. So in a situation like that, basically what you're saying is I have better taste than that person. They don't have good taste. Now, what does taste mean? So anything that comes up that seems random, you see, a lot of times they can often be kind of quite trite memories or quite trite kind of things. And you don't think, oh, shit, that's doesn't matter anything to anybody but it means something and so for yourself that's the thing to learn to to learn to start noticing it mm -hmm. to pick up on those clues and to follow the thread and find where there's you know congruency in the things that are coming up and well, just to the see root. if you can see any pattern once pattern, you start yeah. looking you'll start seeing more i guarantee you that yeah and that in itself then will, might give you some further direction that you couldn't, yet it emerges as it goes along. Mm -hmm. So you can't predict ahead of time what uh -huh. you're going to find or uh, what you'll do with it. Or that you might just, you, you might be surprised to find about yourself, gee, I never realized I was cynical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I am it, you know, gosh. I don't even like cynical people. I mean, I think they're so negative. But you might notice that there's a pattern of you or, or you know, that you have a pattern in yourself of being superior about whatever, maybe some aspect of stuff. And you think, oh, 
no, you don't have to tell everybody else. And we're all so nicely socialized that we've learned to cover up. Yeah. And I could assure you how selfish I am. Why would I? Then you know. So we have this secret thing going on inside and it's seeing it. And that secret thing that's going on inside is essentially what's causing the suffering because it's blocking out our true nature, mm-hmm. our true selves. So the, the reason we have to start uncovering it and putting it, pulling it out is, well, when you pull it out, it disappears, it evaporates, maybe not all in one piece, but it does. And as it gets cleared out, that, I don't know, sewage pit of negativity and unreality and egomaniac, because we're all egomaniacs, it gets cleared out, it gets tinned out, whatever the light of true nature begins to emerge. And then you begin to realize, you know, I'm more contented than I used to be. Mm. I'm happier. I'm more grounded in myself. I don't need so many people to approve of me. And that's a godsend. Yeah. <laughs> so those kinds of things, you will find it in your own way. Mm-hmm. But it's so worthwhile to everybody to just know that they have the solution to their own suffering within themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think what I learned in Tat was how to how to start pulling out little bits and pieces and begin that. Begin to see, you know, uh, yeah, begin to see for yourself and begin to do it. Yeah. Um, so the, the inquiry has been a big part of your path and talking about how everybody's path is different. You know, everyone yes. has is their own puzzle to figure out and you can only do it yourself. Um, for you, it seems like dreams were a big part of your path too. I mean, in your yeah. book, you talked a lot about uh, your dream life and even yeah. how sometimes a dream life comes into real life, uh, into waking yeah. life. Like when you find the snake skin, you know, yeah. it's like a, a, an omen, a dream, dream logic. Yeah. But so yeah. what, what was the, um, what was your, your, your dream life? How, how did that, how, how did that um, work out in your, in your, in yeah. your, um, you know, everybody has all kinds of interests in their lives, I think, you know. I mean, I grew up in a family where, uh, you know, people would talk about their dreams in the morning. So I didn't dream last night. I had an American woman visit one time and she couldn't believe that my father, who was an old man, got up and came to breakfast and he told us the dream he had. And she said, that would, n- I can't, <laughs> and I'm looking at her, but we all would have said our dream. No, it wasn't. Um, Jungian uh, analysis of them or anything like that. It was like, oh, I had the most awful dream last night. I was lost and I couldn't get home. And I was all night, you know, and eventually I got home and we'd be laughing or whatever. And so I grew up in a household where people talked about their dreams. There weren't, there weren't anything to be shameful, ashamed of. Um, no, we weren't, as I said, doing psychoanalysis on them or anything like that. So I had always thought it was a complete, completely natural thing to talk about. And it's completely natural for people to have dreams. And then after I got grown up and I'm in town and I'm there's uh, magazines in the shop, you know, analyzing your dreams. Well, guess what? <laughs> I'm doing science in college, but I'm in the shop buying the dream about <laughs> the magazine about analyzing dreams. I was also buying the magazines about how to do knitting and sewing. I said, you know, one isn't one thing. People think, oh, you did this and you're in that package or whatever. You did science. But one has all, I had all kinds of interests and everybody I know has 
you wouldn't always yeah. know that they had it. So that was one of them. So I'd be, I'd be reading stuff. I would, I would like people to tell me about their dreams. I'd ask them about them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just because it was, I mean, just extraordinary. Um, do you know that you could be having a dream? I had a dream a few nights ago in which there was an Irish poet. His name is Seamus Heaney. I doubt if you know him, but he's a, a Nobel Prize winner of a time ago. So a few nights ago, I was having a chat with Seamus in my dream. Oh. So I, I don't know what we were talking about, but I said, whatever, Seamus Heaney, we're having a chat. Now, it, whatever. Isn't that lovely thing to happen for somebody? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, then at, I was around 30 when I came across Carl Jung's book, um, Dreams, Memories and Symbolism, isn't it, some, isn't it some name like that? It's a very well-known book. I mean, I can't remember the title of it properly. Now, that was an eye-opener to me because he's basically saying that the symbols that arrive in that people have in their dreams, that they're, that they, um, that they're universal, that they're not specific to, you know, a particular person or a thing. So that was very interesting to me. So I would be reading that, you know, um, I, to this day, even today, I took it out for a reason. I was looking, I have um, a dictionary of symbolism, a dictionary of symbols of a couple of them. There's some good ones around. Mm-hmm. It just makes it all so much interesting. So you read something like that. People who have never seen a snake in their lives dream about a snake. Mm. Ah. What is that? You know? Uh, yeah. I mean, I had never seen a snake in my life by the time I was 30. There aren't any snakes in Ireland. Mm-hmm. It's one of our pieces of mythology, huh. snakes. So, but I knew what there were. Of course, you'd have seen, you might have seen pictures in a book or something, but why would it, why would it be so, uh, why would it catch one's interest? Because one sees all kinds of other pictures. I mean, maybe not lions and tigers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, so it was just completely, I just thought, aren't we humans awesome that mm-hmm. we have those dreams? And <laughs> what is this awesome mystery yeah. you know, that somebody in China be- could be dreaming the same symbols as me, that we have completely different language and, mm. you know, different mythologies and so on. So I just found it very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, I began to read about, you know, Freud and so on about analyzing your dreams. And uh, then I, I went through a phase of, you know, keeping a notebook by my bed and writing down my dreams. Now, some people say they don't dream much, but I, I mean, I had a rich vein of dreams mm-hmm. uh, all my life. Mm-hmm. I, and I would say everybody in my family had. Now, I don't know if that's just, is it genetic? Is it the household? Is it the, I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I don't, I, it's, it's surprising to me that there are people who, who don't do, do you dream AC? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How about yeah, you, Isaac? I do. Um, not as much as AC does, but I had some weird mm-hmm. dreams last night. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, isn't it an awesome thing? Yeah. yeah. You know, and you're there in it. I mean, I remember one time having a dream and there was a dog in it and I'm looking at him and I knew he was a man that had died <laughs> from huh. our neighborhood, you know. So as a you dog, you just there was nothing either good or bad about it. It was just in a dream. A dog could be a person that you knew and huh. he knew I knew he was, you know, presenting himself as a dog. Mm-hmm. And he's maybe playing it, trying to be. I mean, children do that kind of stuff. They can go around being a dog or a cat or whatever, you know. Just, <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
try out anything kind of yeah and I just thought it was um yeah uh and I did find, I don't know if I said that in the book, that uh, when I began to keep dream journals, there were patterns to dreams. There were dreams that were ongoing and there were some that were that predicted things. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I said any of that. Now, I, I don't have any explanation for it, but I just think anything that you, whatever you look at will start reveal things that's surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whatever you go into, it will... It's a portal that will open up for you in some way that it will open up, might open up for another person, but in a different way, because we're each on our own individual and unique path. You know, we're, mm-hmm. yeah, on our own soul journey, you could say. Yeah. So do you think that we all find the same thing at the end? Yeah. Or, yeah. Hmm. I do. Yeah. I think that it couldn't not be. And it's good news. Uh-huh. <laughs> what, you find, what you find is good. I mean, people, sometimes I've come across people who think, oh, I'm not looking inside myself. You know, what kind of terrible stuff is inside me? You know, hatred and lust. I mean, hadn't Freud us all convinced that we were nothing but full of lust and anger and resentment and so on? Well, okay, there might be a bit of that that has to be worked through. But at the end of the day, there's a pot of gold for sure. Uh, and it's the same pot of gold for everybody. And uh, I mean, I I think, I, I don't know if this is so or not, but this is what everybody finds when they die. I, now, I don't know if people recognize what it is. This is what I've wondered about awakening. Is huh. awakening in you? Is, aha, I know what that is. I've been here before. I know where I am now. And that could it possibly be that somebody dies and they're in, ah, it's a completely, it's a different kind of thing. And they they don't, they don't uh they're not interpreting it right interpreting isn't the right word because it isn't that isn't right so i don't know about that i mean there's no point in me i'm only speculating Mm. yeah yeah it's well it's it's hard to because everyone has is is their own first person (laughs) yes everyone is their own first person that's it exactly yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so it's hard to know for anybody else what yeah the truth is but so do but you think- other people who've awakened, you know, they say things. Uh-huh. And I think, uh-huh, I know, I know what that person is trying to say. Because you can't say it directly. It's yeah. it's a, it's obviously you can't share with anybody else what I found myself to be, but you can find it this within yourself, is the thing. But people say things and you think, um, I rec I recognize what's being said. Now, uh, uh, what happened to me when I had this awakening experience was I knew absolutely what had happened. I mean, I was different the next day, different in a good way, and that has never changed. I mean, compl- it was just like switch. A switch mm-hmm. happened, um, but I I didn't know what to say about it. It was like, well, it happened, you know, the thing, <laughs> the big thing, <laughs> and I could not say anymore. And the thing was, my mind was wiped. And mm-hmm. I couldn't remember any language or, or anything. And several months later, I was walking down the road and the phrase came into my head as if from the sky, to die before you die. And I thought, oh, that's it. That's what happened. So it was the first time I got language. Now, I don't know who originally said that. Or I think it's pretty ancient. Or, yeah, I think a lot of people said that. I don't yeah. know where it comes from, but it's one of those things you'd have heard. And it was the kind of statement that would have annoyed me before I awakened. It was like, would you, for God's sake, just talk straight to die before you die? This is, the <laughs> sentence doesn't even make, it doesn't even compute as a sentence. So there were a lot of things like that that used to just annoy me. 
Mm. because I didn't understand them. I didn't know what to do with them. Mm. And then, as I say, several months after I had awakened, I'm walking down the street and it came into my head and I went, thank God somebody said that. I know exactly what was meant by it. That is what has happened. That's that's the name for it, you know? Um, so, you know, I, yeah, I was very grateful that there were people that had said things after it happened to them, because then when I began, it began to give me a language. But when I awakened, the situation happened. What happened to me was an experience happened and I recognized it. I thought, oh, I, how could I have forgotten this? I know this. I mean, how could I have forgotten it? I was just astonished. So I would say that what happened to me was self-recognition. I recognized myself. And I would say that when I began to put words on it and say, like, to die before you die, that that was self-realization. That may be just a completely whimsical way of saying it. But it was like, now I began to put a, be able to put words on it and be able to name what it was. But when it actually happened, the feeling and the total thing was, I recognized that this was myself and that I had lost myself. And here I am complete. And the joy of it. I cannot tell you the joy of it. I mean, it was just like you'd lost your mother and you're a child and you're searching in the shoppings and you can't find, you find her. Oh, you, you're just overjoyed. Just, I mean, now you found what you were looking for. You know? Mm -hmm. um, and I, as I said, you know, because I recognized it, I thought what made me think was, well, that means I knew it from before. I don't know. I mean, I was surprised because I had thought, you know, I'm searching for myself, for myself. Well, that'll be something brand new, something different. You know? mm -hmm. It'll be a completely different kind of thing. The truth was, it was something that I knew intimately, mm. but I had never. And it was a question of having forgotten it, completely forgotten it. No. I don't know, was that before I came into a body or when I was a small child? Well, before when you're a small child, it's before you've developed an ego, before this false self has come in. Uh-huh. You know? So something there prior to this, I don't know, this thing that we present ourselves to the world as. Right. And what, I think we are. what is an ego? Well, you know, what is it? It's just a the word itself it's just i don't like using it but i can't think of a better one sometimes people talk about the false self or you know what's not really you i mean sometimes i define the ego as it's just the functioning program that goes with the body the body has a hmm. an operating system that goes with it to mm -hmm. help it survive in the world because it needs it i mean you need to be able to get food and make a living and you know do whatever else it is but uh it's hypervigilant. It goes crazy. <laughs> it starts seeing danger where there is no danger. Okay. It goes really like, you know. Uh, border collie. What? Like a border collie. Yeah. <laughs> like my dog. Seeing danger where there never was any danger and remembering it and passing on. And just, just it gets out of control. It's hypervigilant the whole time. So what happens with self-inquiry is you start calling it on its hypervigilance. You mm -hmm. start thinking, cynical about everything? Well, I mean, look at the world does very well by me, really. I mean, my life is good. I have friends, I have whatever. Why do I always have a negative attitude the minute I meet somebody? Why can't I meet them with a neutral attitude? So you're kind of, you're kind of puncturing a bit of the 
hypervigilant out of the ego. I, I, ref, I say to the people who come to me as, you know, put ego on a diet. It's constantly self-feeding with, you know, the negative emotions and the um, resistance to life as it is. And it, it knows better and it's going to anticipate the future. It's going to control it and all that. Just keep noticing when it's doing that and just neutralize it. Mm-hmm. And just do that for a while. And you know something? You get to be more closer to what's real. You know, as opposed to always being hypervigilant and negative and fearful and in con- trying to be in control. You just become more grounded and more real. Mm, you know, yeah. better, better able to see things as they are, not as you are. Mm-hmm. One of your yeah. stress and anxiety. Yeah. And you talk about in your book, This Above All, A Journey to Self-Discovery, about um, ego and pride and how it's often associated with like pride, but you make a mm-hmm. distinction between pride of yourself and pride of pride in relation to source. So yeah. like I did this versus source did this, right? Yeah. Yeah. I probably, I, well, you know, a lot of... I, I, a lot of people, including myself, would you know use the word pride to basically mean self-esteem. You should be proud of yourself that you're good. You should be proud of yourself that you set up that business or whatever. Mm-hmm. And basically what they mean is self-esteem. So mm-hmm. that's pride in relation to the world. Now, as a Catholic, the seven deadly sins, and mm-hmm. I'm a very efficient person. I had read that the, the pride is the main one. If you can deal with pride, the others just fall by the wayside. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so... What is pride in relation to God? It's taking credit for things that you did not, that you don't deserve credit for. Mm. You're taking credit for having a privileged lifestyle. Born in the West, good parents, been given a good education. These have been gifts that Mm. you didn't earn. Mm -hmm. Okay, you may have done your bit of work and done your your part as well. But for the most part, I had found about myself, you know, um, not being grateful for all I had been given. And it's not, I'm not just talking about gratitude. It's more about recognizing that why would I feel, you know, that I'm deserving and entitled any more than anybody else, you know, or that's my right or whatever. So it's a, it's an attitude mm-hmm. of beginning to call my own bluff about uh, what I was taking credit and control. I mean, you don't have to look very far to see you're not in control of your life. Whereas, <laughs> you know, society tells you you should be in control. If you did that right, if you followed my advice, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So this is put on you all the time. And so you take it on and you feel responsible and then you don't know why you're failing at it and so on. And coming around to realizing, well, I did my best and it still didn't work out. That's in God's hand. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly the stuff that I grew up with as a child. You know, not with the help of God. Yeah. With the help of God, I got to have the good life and the wonderful life I have instead of taking credit for it and assuming that I have the right to even more privilege and that I'm maybe superior to other people because I'm more privileged in whatever way. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what I meant by that. It was a turning point for me Mm -hmm. when I recognized, because I had been making a real effort to... um, not be taking credit, say, for my children turning out well and for them being, you know, having wonderful children. Uh, but that was just the grace of God that I was given 
normal, healthy children. You know, I didn't, I didn't do anything to deserve that any more than anybody else. Yeah. You know, you just don't know. So I, that was part of my self-inquiry, beginning to recognize things like that, becoming more, a more realistic assessment of the situation, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely. So, but also isn't um, self-esteem an important part of the path too? Like, uh, yeah. can you, can you get, you can get sort of the opposite of pride and then get stuck in low self-esteem mm. and thinking, woe is me and everything is, you know, yeah. I'm just uh, uh, flotsam and jetsam in the, in the universe and that. Yeah. You know. um, so have you had experience with that side of things too? Um, and is, yeah, like can can lack of of self-esteem also cause issues yeah do you remember what richard rose said about this isaac ah uh, something about you gotta you gotta uh grow your head you have to fatten up your head before you chop it off <laughs> <laughs> he, he had such language yeah, yeah. You know? so this business of fattening up your head uh, in some ways i would say it you know becoming a mature adult and taking responsibility for yourself you know, as opposed to being a victim. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's so and important. It's everybody else's fault, and I didn't get the chance, and oh, whatever, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, nobody ever says I'm too lazy to do it, but I couldn't be bothered, or, you know, whatever. Mm. A kind of like taking it on. Mm. I'll do my best. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what I think is right, and giving it your all and doing your best. In that sense, it's um, taking a responsibility for yourself and for your own condition and doing it. I mean, I think that's self-esteem. Mm. Um, I had, uh, people have asked me actually that question several times because I had given a talk in which I used that phrase. Yeah. Um, and people think that it means, you know, uh, you know, I feel good about myself and I'm important and I'm well qualified. And I, um, the phrase I had used was getting beyond self-esteem. But what I meant by it was, um, you get to a point where you realize I function. I'm not great. I'm not. I'm not the beautiful, charismatic, hugely successful person I'd like to be. I function. That's enough. And stop <laughs> trying to fix yourself any further. Mm. Do you know what I mean by that? You're just not. I mean because people get stuck in in psychotherapy and they spend. Well, it's it's great in the beginning because it does help a lot. You come to terms with some things and you learn to function a bit better and to not be doing this or to do that instead or to be you know. So you learn to function a bit better and then life gets a lot better. So then you keep on trying to improve it and improve it. You know, I have two degrees now. I get a PhD. Now I get you know, and I do all I do all kinds of stuff to make myself look beautiful and I'll get a bigger house and, you know, that kind of stuff. It's kind of like, I'm functioning. Mm -hmm. I'm fine. And Rich stop trying to fix yourself any further. That's when you really go on the path. Richard Rose has had a good uh, phrase about that too. Something about polishing a turd. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. 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 You can only polish a turd so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, he, he had this incredible it's such language. a way. But yeah, so that's what I meant by it. You get to, I mean, and that's a significant point when you realize, well, look, I'm functioning okay. I'm, mm. It's never going to be perfect. I don't even like that word perfect. Mm. Um, I can go along. This job is okay. My relationship is okay. You know, my health is all right. If something happens that has to be dealt with, I'll deal with it. But I, at the level of functioning and not trying to, you know, and then you get into proper self-inquiry as to, you know, what's beneath that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So what can be the problem of go, going too far in that direction and just like get an overly inflated ego? <laughs> oh, yeah. I could point out a few politicians in your country to you if you don't. All of them? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and probably in mine, although, uh, yeah, I don't, want to, I don't want to bring that into our conversation. But you know what I mean. I mean, you can, you'd have to look very far to see an inflated ego in action, what it is. This, it's always yeah. been, I mean, any dictator in the world, every culture and every century has had them. And they don't have to be on the world stage. They can be in the local school or the local business. <laughs> there. Yeah, those are kind of like super examples, um, yeah. very inflated egos, yeah. but I think it's very common to mm-hmm. have a rather inflated ego. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But then also common to have like a deflated ego <laughs> too. Like a victim mentality. And yeah. Like you say, kind of thing. yeah, not taking There's no power and everybody can yeah. do anything to me and so on. Yeah. yeah. But you know, victim mentality can work very well as a functioning mechanism too. Yeah. <laughs> but so the, 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 the point is to get to a, a middle path, I guess, with that so mm. that you can actually, you know, you're not distracted uh, and you can get yeah. dig into it. Well, uh, getting to a place where you start taking responsibility for yourself and stop blaming other people and looking to see what can I do for me and what are the possibilities yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so what's the first step I can take? Uh-huh. You know, what can I do uh, to get myself going, you know, taking a bit of responsibility? Yeah. Maybe I can get up in the morning. Yeah. Maybe I can make a commit myself, commitment to myself to get up every morning uh-huh. uh, at a particular time. It doesn't have to be six o'clock or five o'clock, whatever, you know, a reasonable time. And just that some simple commitment, something doable. I mean, I think do start with things that are doable yeah. uh-huh. for yourself so that then, you know, a week or two with that, then you have a couple of weeks of success with that. Now you can begin to build, build on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think when you're depressed or when you're in that victim mentality, it's so easy to forget, um, you know, yeah. that you have the ability to make a commitment to yourself to get up in the morning at a certain yeah. time or or little things like that. And this kind of brings to something you speak to speak about um, with hunting for joy or the vigilance to notice joy whenever it comes up um, and that that joy is kind of like spiritual wonder. Um, and that can help you on your path too, right? Of yeah, like finding yeah. that joy. Just to notice, you're just walking down the street and you see a daisy growing out of the mm. side path. Or, But I do think you have to kind of uh, have cleared away the kind of the crisis things that are going on before that. I mean, if somebody is, you know, caught up in addiction. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Mm-hmm. of whatever kind or you know in very toxic relationship and you're fighting with somebody all the time they're about to leave you you know or you're about to leave um it's hard to it's hard to see the wonder of life in such yeah. situations so you what might you do then you might start and think well what can i do about that maybe i can not drink before midday today maybe i can start going to 12 step whatever look at it, it'll be different everybody has their own place i mean you have to start where you are i mean what an <laughs> what an obvious sentence to say you know yeah. you can't yeah. start where you would want to be or where you wish to be you'd kind of take some kind of stock of where you are and say now what would make what do i think would make my life a bit better tomorrow a bit better 
some one thing that would make it a bit better. I'll do that tomorrow. And that's a commitment to yourself. Whatever. It'll be a different thing for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, talking a little, <laughs> a little bit about, uh, well, earlier talking about phrases that annoyed you. Um, for, for me, this is a, a, a common phrase that I hear in like a lot of uh, non-dual uh, situations is that you are already enlightened. Uh. <laughs> so you don't, you don't care for that either? No. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's like saying an acorn, that's already an oak tree. Yeah. I mean, like an acorn, you say, is, that's already an oak but, tree. Yeah. It's not right. Well, it's not, is it? I no. mean, you know, this the potential is there and everything is there, but it's, yeah. Yeah. So there is also this, the side that you're wrecking, what you said, you're, you recognized yourself. And so you already are, you know, that what you're looking for. So how do you become what you already are? What? <laughs> Listen to your own sentence, Isaac. How do you become what you already are? <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you you can't, right? So that, that comes goes you into... Already like, are it. How can you that. become what you already are? Um, but the, but the acorn is isn't are, already an oak tree. But there's a... I don't know. We're not... Uh, we're blocked off from being aware of it. There's a blockage. Mm-hmm. And that we get that blockage out of the way, and there you are. That's okay. what you always were, but there was a blockage in the way. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of out in front of this blockage. And so self-inquiry and so on is like, that's my way of thinking of it, removing the blockage or poking holes in it. Mm -hmm. And then the true self will burst through or come through in bits or whatever. I don't know, but it'll, it's, that's what I, how I think of it. And so that blockage is that false self or that ego. Yeah. Right. Because we're out in front of it. It all seems so simple. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, what we're at here really is trying to find a way to talk about this, the human problem, the human condition. And there's no doubt, but the human condition is a condition of suffering. Uh -huh. I mean, look around the world at any time. And the Buddha said it, you know, life is suffering. So well, what causes this suffering? I mean, you look at the animals or the cats or the birds or whatever, they're not suffering. They're enjoying the sun when it shines. They hide in the tree when the wind is blowing, whatever. So why are we so in such a state and so anxious and so nervous and committing suicide? I mean, we're desperate and, you know, taking substances to make ourselves feel better. Um, so there is a condition of unhappiness or distress going on. And uh, it's a question of how can we, can that be corrected? And we can, what, I'm, what we're saying in a real spiritual path is about, yes, there are things you can do that would facilitate the correction of it. You can't turn around and correct it, but you can facilitate the possibility of a correction happening. Is that, is that all right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's kind of grace. Uh, it is, but you can, as Bart Marshall says, make yourself vulnerable to grace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do, it, what you, do you know, do your part. Right. It's like getting struck by lightning, but you can go around, you know, during a lightning storm with a, a, a rod and try to. <laughs> you yeah. Know. You can do what you do what you can. I mean, I think we do have to do the bit 
do the bit that we can on our end. Mm -hmm. And uh, then who knows? Okay, so I have a question about something that you kind of brushed over in the book about faces. Um, and you, faces. yeah, so your Harding. it's yeah. the idea from Douglas Harding in his book, Hierarchy of Heaven and Earth, where your face is not your own, your yeah. face belongs to the world. Right. Because yeah. you don't see your face. And you said you you thought about this. and You're like, yeah, in a group, you know, everybody can see my face and I can see everybody else's face in this group. Yeah. in this little room, But they can't see their own face. And you said you didn't really realize the significance of this till later. And I was wondering, like, what is the significance of not seeing your own face on the day to day? Well, Douglas Harding would say that we're headless. That's his mm-hmm. expression. So where my face is. From my perspective, it's a space. Yeah. It's a hole. Yeah. Now, my face isn't a hole to you. Yeah. I mean, everybody else sees a face, but from one's own first person perspective, it's a hole in which all of the world is happening, all whatever is stuff mm-hmm. coming and going and whatever in it. Mm-hmm. And so that's, yeah. I mean, I just didn't get what was so important about that. I could say, yeah. I agree with them. I see that. I know, but so what? Mm. Um, so what are we really? Where I mean, Douglas would say we're a space in which for the world to happen in. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I I have been thinking about this because since basically COVID, since like we've really brought more. Um, attention to meeting online and see, and even with this podcast, doing these interviews where it's like, you can kind of see your face reflected back at you as you're talking to other people and with like selfie mode and all these like videos of ourselves, you know, we're just as a culture, we're seeing our own face more and more. And I've been thinking about how that might change how we are as people, you know, and you're seeing your own face as an object. Yeah. The empty space is seeing this object yeah. reflected back. It's not actually your face. It's a reflection of it. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> it's, yeah, weird. it's like a photograph. Uh-huh. Yeah, you'd say, that's me or whatever, but it's not you. It's, it's, a, it's a reflection. You look in the mirror. It's not you. It's a reflection. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're here looking at your own reflection. One is looking at one's own reflection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've just yeah, I mean, Douglas would say we're space mm-hmm. for the world to happen in. Mm. Hmm. When it comes down to it, uh, it seems as though everything is a an object. I mean, thoughts and feelings can be are objects too in consciousness. Then it yeah. comes down to like what is what is aware of those things. <laughs> yeah, awareness is aware of them. <laughs> awareness. I mean. Isn't that what the space is? A space, an aware space. Mm-hmm. Your head is an aware space. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could say the world is, you know, a, a television show going on, and you're the one eye looking at this television show that's going on with all the different bits of drama and whatever objects arising and passing, coming and going. Mm-hmm. 
and you don't have any control over them. They're just coming and going. Mm -hmm. That's it. But you get, you get, and your particular vision is different from mine or from anybody else's. It's unique to you. Mm. I mean, you're just two people looking at each other. You can see that the two faces, or what, what's the objects in each space are completely different. They're each other's faces. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that's a very important thing when you start realizing that uh, your own thoughts are an object, that you can see them. Mm -hmm. Or that your own feelings, you can look and you can say, well, what am I feeling now? I'm feeling angry. Oh, yeah, I can see something sees that I am angry. Right. I can see it. Anger is there. Mm hmm. And then say, oh, I saw anger and thoughts of, I hate that person. <laughs> no wonder I'm, that should not have happened. There's a thought. I can see that thought and it coming up different, various different ways, different versions of it or whatever. And you can see it. Um, yeah, it's just, just a, like there's objects out there and there's objects in here. There's, you know, different range. And you just learn to turn your... Mm -hmm. turn your head on them you, that was a phrase Richard Rose used to say wasn't it the way you turn your head or something like that like how what you're looking at inside of yourself noticing your own thoughts head. and feelings yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah turning the inner head yeah well looking at you know seeing your own thoughts and seeing them changing and seeing what triggers them and seeing what you can do with them can you stop them how long can you keep it stopped? I mean, you can play games with yourself. And I used to do this thing of doing experiments, try this or try that to see what would happen. It's a great thing to do because it gives you um, it gives you a bit of distance from yourself. Mm. You know, you're just looking to see what's going to happen besides being too, um, too I don't know what, invested in the outcome. Yeah. So I just want to see what will happen here, you know about anything, your behavior, things you say, I mean, just do something completely different. Mm -hmm. I did a thing all through my 30s, and I didn't think it was part of a spiritual path. But with hindsight, I think it was a very significant thing. I I think I had read someplace that, you know, some people are old before their time, that they get set in their ways, and they do get up every morning, they do exactly the same thing, and they do it for the rest of their lives. And they're disturbed and upset if something, if it doesn't fall into place, they do something different. So the idea was do something different every day. Mm. <laughs> so I'd say in my for my whole thirties, I'd say that I, I had a little practice. I didn't call it a practice. It was just a bit of fun for me. There would be something different I would do every day. It might be if I drank tea without sugar, I put a spoon of sugar in a cup of tea. Just once. It might be I buy this newspaper normally. I buy a different one. Mm -hmm. It could be anything. I normally do my grocery shopping in that shop. I'll go to a different one. I so I was just doing a thing of breaking habits. Oh. Um, and I think actually that uh, somehow it kept me very fluid. Uh, and I, I yeah, I, I didn't think, I, well, I said I wasn't thinking of it as spiritual inquiry or self-inquiry or anything. I just <laughs> was trying not to get old too fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good That's all I had in mind with it, you know, to not be getting old before your time, set in your ways, kind of, that kind of a, a phrase. Um but I think I, that I think is a good thing for a person to do because most people don't like change and it can be uncomfortable and it doesn't always mean doing nice things. Do something that's just do it because it's different. Yeah. Anything once a day. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a big thing. I never told anybody about this. I mean, uh -huh. I did. I mean, I, at least 
I didn't really tell anybody. I doubt if I did. If I did, it was just by way of entertainment. You know, yeah. I didn't realize the significance of what I was at, really. That's hmm. cool. Well, uh, it seems that we've already gone a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So. Um, so is there anything that you else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we uh, wrap it up? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think so, Isaac. It's been lovely talking with you. And yeah, too. I mean, I'd have liked if the, the shoe was on the other foot a bit and that the two of you talked more and told me a bit more. <laughs> but uh, it didn't happen that way. And I, I didn't want to be asking questions. I, I thought maybe that wasn't what you wanted. But um, it's been completely delightful for me. Well, we can definitely do that again sometime and, and just chat more. And I'll ask you questions. I'll have some. I come the next time with questions. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs>